Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name is Christian Byrne and today I'm pleased to be joined by Ben Sykes. Ben's an Associate Professor in Equine Medicine at Massey University in New Zealand and today he's going to be talking about his article Diagnosis and Management of Sand Enteropathy in the Horse. That was um, written with his um, uh, co-author um, Cathy Ninister um, and that article is currently on uh, Early View on Equine Veterinary Education. Thank you very much for taking the time to um, join us today, um, Ben. That's very kind of you. Pleasure. Um, so a really interesting article, and I think a, a subject that some will be really familiar with, and uh, maybe for others it's a, it's a more infrequent thing to encounter. Um, we'll somewhat follow the, the structure of the article, um, and that sort of kicks off discussing a little bit about the etiology. So um, at the start, you... Um, discuss a behavior called geophagia um, and explain why that's sort of important in the context of sand enteropathy and can you tell us a little bit more about that and whether it's an active behavior um, or is it something that horses are doing accidentally do we know yeah it's a really good question and I think you know when we talk about sand it's one of those things that you know we've known about it for a long time um and if you live in a sand affected area, it's a really big problem. But actually, you know, we talk about evidence based medicine, and there's very little um, evidence until very recently as to, you know, how we guide our decision making and stuff like that. So, um, and so there's a lot probably we'll come across this several times with questions where the answer is, well, we don't really know. Um, I think the answer to the geophagia question um, is both, you know, we, we have horses that are appear to eat sand deliberately or eat, eat, mm-hmm. um, eat soil deliberately. And then we have an, other animals that it appears to be an accidental ingestion. And so, um, you know, when we think about why they eat sand deliberately or soil deliberately, we may be able to intervene on that in one way. When we think about why they eat sand accidentally, we may be able to intervene on another way of that. So there's, you know, the, the, the answer is not going to be the same for every horse. Okay, that's great. And I guess one thing you hint at a little bit there is that we don't necessarily have a huge body of evidence for some of these questions. Um, but is there any evidence from other species or is it a, a commonly reported um, behaviour that we see in, in other species at all? Yeah, we, we certainly see it in other species. You know, it's reported in other species across a range of other species. Um, it's been reported in, in humans as well. Um, and, you know, there's a range of factors that affect that, um, you know, young animals, um, in, in dogs, for example. Um, and, you know, we see it associated potentially with, um, you know, when we think about geophagia, so when we think about deliberate eating, um, it is potentially associated with the deliberate ingestion of trace minerals. And so again, we don't have great evidence for this. There's a sort of a study here and a study there, but there is some, small body of evidence that says that copper um, and iron might be important and and that horses that are practicing geophagia and eating deliberately um, that may be a trace mineral that they're seeking so when we think about interventions it's a small relatively risk-free easy intervention we can do um, if we have horses that you know that are are deliberately consuming sand Okay, and then I guess um, a follow-on from that. Obviously, this is uh, we're talking about a behaviour here, but the, sort of the title of the paper is more about sand enteropathy. So, trying to just bridge the link between those, do 
all horses that end up eating some sand, does that necessarily result in an accumulation of sand in the gastrointestinal tract? I guess is a, an important question at the outset as well. Yeah, it's a great question. The answer is absolutely not, you know, and that's one of the limitations when we get to say like the fecal glove test is, um, you know, and just because you eat it doesn't mean you accumulate it. And, and I guess it's the, you know, the, the language gets a bit confusing is that, you know, we talk about geophagia, which is, you know, an intentional eating of soil. And then we talk mm -hmm. about, you know, accidental ingestion of sand and sand accumulation. And we do certainly see horses that, you know, eat soil that then accumulate things other than sand, you know, we'll occasionally get horses that accumulate gravel and stuff like that, but it's definitely sand mm -hmm. seems to be the thing that they accumulate most. Um, but what we don't know is why when we have, you know, X number of horses, a hundred horses on a paddock and they're all exposed to the same conditions, we don't have a great understanding of why some individual horses appear to, you know, accumulate the sand and other horses that passes through just fine. Um, so there's a, population level risk of exposure. There's an individual level risk potentially associated with um, eating behavior, like being a greedy horse uh, or being mm -hmm. low on the social hierarchy increases your risk of sand accumulation. Um, but there's also, a, there's also an individual level risk that we, that we don't understand is um, why some horses can have all of that stacked against them and never accumulate sand. And other horses seem to accumulate sand very, very readily and rapidly and very quickly, um, you know, when exposed to the right conditions or the wrong conditions. Thanks. That's a really, a really great summary. I think of, of quite a, a difficult aspect of the uh, the discussion about that. That we uh, obviously there is some open and open ended questions still there uh, uh, that we're not sure about. But that that's been really helpful just to to give us some perspective on that. Um, in terms of what we do know in areas where sand enteropathy has been reported um do we have a good picture of where that does or doesn't happen yeah i mean we've definitely got in the literature you know areas um that are overrepresented um you know in the us we've got california florida um you, you know colorado a range of different places where it's been reported um in my part of the world uh western australia is you know that's sort of the one that we most commonly associate with it um uh, in New Zealand here, we have specific geographical areas almost down to the town level that we will see sand from one town and you move 30 kilometres away and you don't ever see sand from that place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, really heavily dependent on the soil type and probably a range of other factors as well. Um, anecdotally, we definitely recognise that perhaps not surprisingly, it's a common problem in the Middle East. Um, and then we see, you know, sporadic reports from the literature of South America and stuff like that. And, and some of that's probably a bias of a, you know, a representation in terms of what gets represented in the literature um, and the, particularly the English language literature that we probably have a, you know, a, a large number of other geographical areas where it, it would, would be a real problem, but it's just not necessarily reflected in the literature per se. So it's, it's definitely, you know, has the potential to be a global, you know, an issue anywhere that you have the right conditions around the, around the world. Perfect. Yeah. So a good, uh, a good spread everywhere really, but um, maybe there's some places it's not necessarily um, documented as well as others um, seems to be the underlying message with that. Um, probably along a similar lines is about predispositions for particular breeds. Um, and again, maybe some of that might come down to um, particular breeds that are used in, in particular areas where that geography tends to match. Is, is that the case? Do we think 
Yeah, absolutely. It's probably an interplay of a number of different things. You know, obviously we have geographical regions where certain breeds are more common than other breeds. Um, in the US, obviously quarter horses. Uh, in Finland, it's fin horses. And, and where I am in New Zealand, it's <laughs> miniature horses. We, we have a lot of miniature horses. Um, and so, you know, that potentially plays a role. But then we have this sort of complex interplay between the environment and then those horses' individual characteristics and particularly probably their individual grazing characteristics. So when we, you know, when we list those horses, when we list minis, quarter horses, fin horses, these are horses all known for their voracious appetites. Um, and so they, you know, their ability to consume and, and, and their somewhat indiscretion in their eating, they'll eat anything. Um, some of them will eat basically <laughs> anything. So, you know, whereas a, a slightly more sensitive horse may choose not to eat that grass because it has a gritty taste, um, the fin horse will keep plowing on and, and eat, uh, eat regardless. And then also particularly, you know, when we look at this, you know, a lot of the horses we see, when we see them clinically, they have massive accumulations, you know, kilograms and kilograms of sand in them. And you sit there and, you know, how did that get there and how did that not show clinical signs? But actually, mm -hmm. if we look at those breeds that have that predisposition to those really big accumulations, they do tend to be these very stoic breeds. So it's quite possible that there is an interaction there, that there is low-grade gastrointestinal discomfort associated with that. But because they're very stoic breeds, they don't necessarily show it until they get to a threshold effect. And when we start stepping back and look at more at population levels, and we'll probably touch on this more when we talk about clinical signs, we actually recognize before we get to that crisis point that we see a whole different range of clinical signs that are much more subtle than we would traditionally associate with, you know, our, our, our previous opinions of what we would associate with sand. And so it's probably that interplay between, yeah, there's maybe a role of breed, but maybe it's not the breed per se, it's the breed characteristics. And then obviously, you know, the environments that they operate. And then obviously if we have horses like you know, warm bloods um, that are, uh, you know, performance warm bloods that are living largely in a stable environment or thoroughbred racehorses that live the majority of their time in a stable horse environment. Lack of exposure is the single, you know, the most protective thing to prevent a horse from getting sand is not have exposure to sand. Um, and I'm not advocating that we should keep horses indoors for solely that reason, but from an epidemiological yeah. point of view, it's obvious that those horses are going to be very low risk to accumulate because their lifestyle doesn't lend them to being exposed to the risk factor. Yeah, sure. That's a re really interesting uh, uh, few points there to to think about, and maybe some some of those are, um, yeah, coming at, at two different angles for for risk factors for for particular breeds. That's really interesting. Um, one thing we touched on a little bit earlier was. Uh, Maybe in, in a particular property, uh, you might have some variation amongst the horses. But what about in between different properties as themselves? Do we, do we know much about what might make one um, property uh, a bigger risk uh, than, you know, another one a, a few miles down the road? Um, soil type is, you know, probably the main thing. And, and we know at a very sort of high level, you, you know, we can make a statement on that in the sense that, you know, having clay clay soil is protective well that makes sense because clay soil is not sandy so um you know it's unlikely that horses are going to be ingesting a lot of sand and horses with exposure to sand soil and and we'll see that within an even within an individual property where if you've got rolling hills and river flats you know you're going to have different soil types across different parts of the property and then within those at risk areas 
we do see some difference in terms of, you know, pasture quality or pasture type and stuff like that. So we know very long and very short grass are higher risk than sort of medium length grass. Um, the short grass probably because it takes very aggressive grazing. The long grass is not quite so clear why long grass would be an increased risk. It seems a little bit counterintuitive. But the thought is maybe that that long grass doesn't necessarily have the same root structure. So it's easier to pull the whole plant out rather than graze the plant off. Um, and so those factors will influence and, and we don't really know, but, but grass type probably plays a role too. You know, I don't think it's been looked at per se, to my knowledge, at least it hasn't, but grass type, type will play a role. You know, grass type that's shallow rooted and easy to remove the whole plant is going to be a higher risk than something that's very deeply rooted where you, you know, you're effectively grazing off the plant rather than, mm -hmm. um, you know, pulling the whole plant out and ingesting it roots and all. That's great. I think uh, that leaves us a good, a good point to um, uh, sort of wrap up the epidemiology discussion a little bit and move on a little bit more to some of the uh, intricacies of the diagnosis. Um, and I think one thing that's useful to to think about in the in the first instance at, at this stage is, um, as you've said, whether accumulation of sand um, uh, is always clinically significant or whether there's whether there is a lot of variation on that between individuals you've certainly got some nice figures in the um uh, in the article that, that demonstrates a sort of normal abdominal radiograph um, and then another one with with some sand accumulation so i guess you know if you if you come up with one of those uh, in an, in a horse that's maybe not got many clinical signs how uh, how do we expect that to play out yeah, and, and that's a, a broader question when we talk about gastrointestinal disease. You know, what does low grade, you know, where does subclinical become non-clinical? And that's a, mm -hmm. you know, that's a real challenge with gastrointestinal disease. And, you know, we see exactly the same thing with gastric ulcers, um, which is obviously my other pet subject. Um, and, you know, we see lesions, but are they clinically relevant? And sand is another one of those that, you know, we see lesions and where do we draw the line to make clinical relevance? I guess what we're starting to appreciate more and more is that gastrointestinal health is really important to total health. So we do, you know, we do strive to optimize gastrointestinal health across the board at a very high level. What that means for sand accumulations is, you know, there is a thresh, there are points where as you start to accumulate um, larger amounts that, that, is, that is associated with an increased risk of clinical signs. Smaller amounts appear to be well tolerated and small amounts that are transient appear to be very well tolerated. So the act of eating and passing sand per se doesn't appear to really be an issue uh, in itself. Um, you know, it's not the actual, you know, the sand going through that's the issue. It's the sand accumulation that's the issue. And so it's when we then start to see that accumulation of sand that we start to associate it with clinical signs. That's great. Um, so I think that that leads us on to a um, a good time to, to have a bit of a discussion about the the clinical signs we might see. Um, as you've said, some of those can be um, uh, maybe more subtle than others. But what what in your sort of um, experience, what would you typically expect some of the presentations you might encounter be for a horse with sand dendropathy? So we have, you know, sort of the two main presentations. We obviously have an acute presentation where these horses present with a large colon or a large bowel obstruction. Um, they can be completely obstructed and present, you know, severely distended, very tachycardic and basically a surgical straight, you know, as a surgical emergency. Others will be sort mm -hmm. of a step back from that, that they'll present as a, 
you know, as a severe impaction, basically a severe large bowel infaction, impaction, but they can be resolved medically in terms of, you know, they've still got a patent gastrointestinal tract. And so as long as there's, you know, parts of manure, you can sort of relieve the majority of those medically. And so that's a fairly well-recognized presentation. Um, a lot of those horses, some of those horses will have no predisposing history. They'll just present with that acute presentation. But some of them, when you look into the history, they'll often be, a, you know, a, you know, oh, it had a little bit of an episode last week or it had this or, or had that. And then we have yeah. the subacute presentation. And I think the thing with the subacute presentation is, and this is where Cuddy Ninisto's works really changed the way I think that we look at sand. Um, I think she's changed the way that we look at sand in terms of a clinical presentation. And I think she's really changed the way we look at sand in terms of therapeutically. And we'll get to that obviously later. But the subacute presentation, you know, traditionally we've always sort of thought of sand as presenting with low-grade diarrhea and that diarrhea is being considered almost a prerequisite to, to have sand. And Cardi's work pretty clearly shows that that's not the case. Um, the presentation we see is much more of one that's sort of this non-specific low-grade gastrointestinal disease or even a vagus syndrome, this sort of non-specific low-grade poor performance. So we may mm -hmm. see low-grade diarrhea associated with the presence of sand, but we're also we're looking particularly for combinations of that associated with a history of colic or a history of poor performance. And so it's these combinations of poor performance and diarrhea or poor performance and colic that make us think in an at-risk area, make us think of sand. And when we change the way we think about that and we look at these horses that present acutely, often actually when we go back and look at their history, maybe they haven't got a history of diarrhea, but they may have a history of low-grade colic or they may have a history of poor performance. The other thing that I think is really interesting there is if you go back to a study from um, Mike Hewitson's group a few years ago in Finland, they were looking at risk factors for gastric disease and they had a finding in their study that it appeared that sand was protective against glandular gastric disease. And mm -hmm. I think as we know more and more what actually the data was there, but there was a slight misinterpretation in the sense that I think what their data shows is, is that the presentation of sand enteropathy as a chronic presentation mirrors the presentation of glandular gastric disease. So the horses tended to present with the same clinical science and had one, one disease or the other. Um, and that's why it appeared to be protective because it sort of split the population depending on which, which disease they had. So when we change that mindset, when we change the mindset of thinking about you know, what are the, who are the horses that have sand in our clinical populations and how do they present? And we change away from being solely focused on the gastrointestinal tract to saying, well, they may or may not have gastrointestinal signs, but there's a, a presentation before that that's even sort of a broader presentation that is a presentation of nonspecific pain. And so then we're looking at horses that are presenting for poor performance. Then we're looking at horses that are presenting for um, you know, these relatively vague things like hyperesthesia and stuff like that. And we're considering sand as a differential amongst our other normal differentials like orthopedic disease, saddle fit, dental disease, gastric ulcers, sand, and then to a lesser degree, you know, inflammatory bowel disease and stuff like that. So it creates a much broader scope for the type of presentation that may be clinically relevant to these horses. Yeah, I think that's a really a really good point to come away from this uh, this article with is that you know that could be a another another differential for those uh, those kind of investigations which maybe is not always uh, 
uh, one that comes comes straight to mind. So I think that's that's a really good uh, uh, takeaway that you've highlighted there. Um, I think in terms of a, a practical discussion, obviously coming back to some of those cases that are presenting more as an acute colic type episode, um, I think the thing to maybe focus on first is um, for vets working in the field, what's maybe the test that they should be thinking about doing? Um, uh, there's maybe some that people are more familiar with than others, but in, in terms of practical things we can do in the field when you're presented with a, a colicky horse that might fit the um, uh, the presentation of a, of a sand enteropathy, what, what tests would they be best doing? Yeah, so in terms of an acute presentation, the 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 diagnosis of sand per se is somewhat academic and somewhat um, almost redundant because when we assess these horses acutely as an acute presentation, the criteria by which we assess them for surgical intervention remains the same. You know, it's the same as any other, particularly any other large bowel um, disease, whether it be a displacement, not so much a torsion, but a non-strangulating large bowel disease. So, you know, do we have controllable levels of pain? Do we have borborygmi? Do we have um, fecal passage? Um, you know, what sort of abnormalities are present rectally and those sorts of things. And so at, in that moment of deciding, you know, what does this horse need in terms of a field presentation, the presence or absence of sand is, is somewhat arbit- academic and, and, and almost, as I said, redundant. It's much more about is mm-hmm. this horse one that can be managed primarily from a pain level? Um, and is this horse one that's got a reasonable expectation of being able to resolve this medically? And that for me is where the borborygmi and the passage of fecal matter becomes really important because if you've got a complete sand occlusion of the, of, of the dorsal mm. colon, then, you know, those horses aren't going to resolve medically. But most of them that will have, a, you know, a patent gastrointestinal tract, you can nurse them through that critical period. I do think in the hospital setting, it becomes a little bit more important as we start to differentiate that because we know that, you know, in an ideal world, we try and avoid surgery as much as possible across the board. And that's certainly true when we talk about horses with sand because many of these horses have um, very friable colons and the risk of rupture at surgery is quite high. So if mm-hmm. I think the yeah. horse has sand, I try my absolute darndest not to take it to surgery um, as, as I would with any you know non-strangulating large bowel obstruction, try very, very hard not to take them to surgery. And that's somewhat amplified in, in horses with sand because of the friability of the gastrointestinal tract and the friability of the bowel. So, but from a field setting, that acute management is actually... Um, the same principles apply as they would for any other colleague. Yeah, okay. I think that's 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 really good, and just uh, uh, you know keeps it back to uh, the the fundamental principles about about what you know how we should be managing them. So that's that's really great. Um, I guess um, in the scenario maybe then where we've got a, a horse where maybe we're able to get it a little bit more comfortable and it is it is passing some um, some feces then uh, often the the temptation in, in that situation is maybe to take some uh, feces in a um, and do a fecal glove sedimentation test so um, I think that's one of the things that maybe jumps to everybody's mind straight off the bat um, in terms of thinking about a, a, a case with sand enteropathy what do we know about that as a test um, and whether it's whether it's useful or not yeah so absolutely so as we come out of that acute period we're then starting to think about predisposing factors and you know obviously sand's going to be one of those and if it's there we need to do something about it so you know how do we make that diagnosis 
Um, auscultation is one way. Um, if we hear the characteristic sounds, you know, sand sounds, then, you know, that usually indicates there's a significant amount of sand present. But if we don't hear them, um, it doesn't mean that sand's present. The negative predictive value of that test is low because you need quite a lot of sand to actually, you know, get that auscultatable um, abnormality more than we would probably associate mm -hmm. with the likelihood of clinical signs. The fecal glove test is a is a one that I think is, um, you know, I, I think if there's, for me, if there's one, there's two big take home arguments from this article or from cutting Innisto's work or the body of work that we now know about sand, um, the glove test is not necessarily Cardi's work, but it's, it's covered in this article, is that mm -hmm. is not an accurate test. That is not a test that we can use to um, determine whether a horse has a clinically relevant quantity of sand uh, accumulated or not. And, I, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's as simple as that. That, that test, I, I don't think that test has a place in, you know, the quality of clinical practice that we should be striving for because it simply lacks the accuracy of what we're looking for. Um, what that test mm -hmm. tells us is exposure to sand. And so if we have a horse on sandy pastures and we see sand in the faecal glove test, then we probably shouldn't be shocked. We probably, um, we know that the horse is consuming sand, so it's reasonable that the sand should be coming out in the feces. And actually, if we take it mm -hmm. the next level, it's not the horse that's passing the sand in its feces that we're worried about. It's the horse that's accumulating sand. So a horse that's exposed to sand acutely and not passing sand out of its feces is actually the one that we should be worried about. So it's a test that, you know, intuitive, you know, the surface seems so appealing because it's simple, it's nice, it's a lovely demonstration when we have students. But when you start scratching the surface, very quickly it starts falling down. And then we, mm -hmm. you know, then we start moving into say, well, what evidence do we have for this? You know, we talk the talk the talk of evidence-based medicine. What evidence do we have for this? And there are two studies that are out there. Um, neither of them, unfortunately, have made it to the full peer-reviewed literature, but they're both good, solid studies, kind of like student studies that got um, got done as final year students, um, student studies that actually really should have been published because they're really good um, information to have in the literature to ask a very clinically relevant question. And you know, when we look at horses that are presenting, there was one study when we look at horses that present with, you know, a clinical suspicion of sand enteropathy, um, i.e. the pretest probability is relatively high, we think those horses probably do have sand, then the positive mm -hmm. predictive value under those conditions is pretty good. So if we get a positive test, then, in, you know, in that study, 90% of those horses had a significant accumulation of sand. But that's probably not a shock. They're in an at-risk population and they've got clinical signs consistent with sand enteropathy. What we're much more interested mm -hmm. in is the negative predictive value. If the animal tests negative, what's the likelihood that the animal's truly negative? And under those conditions, the negative predictive value was only about 50%. So in terms of saying, well, I don't think the horse has sand, we might as well stand next to the horse's stall and flip a coin as <laughs> we should do the fecal glove test under those conditions. And if I said to you, let's, stand next to this horse's stall and toss a coin and decide whether we're going to do something about this animal's clinical condition, you would laugh at me. You would say that, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a madman. Um, but yet yeah. this fecal glove test perpetuates and perpetuates, even though, um, you know, it's just not an accurate test. When we move out into the, the, the real world, um, you know, where we talk about using it as a screening test, so it's separating that clinical population that you talked about, you know, the horse had an episode of colic, and we're wanting to follow it up from there, when we move out into the real world and we start using it as a screening test, 
then it becomes, you know, it becomes very, very unreliable um, because we, the, the pretest probability goes down. So we start trusting a lot less in the positive predictive value, but the negative predictive value still only comes up, you know, to maybe 75% or something like that. So we're still going to miss a quarter of the horses. So um, that, that application of that sort of clinical epidemiology or those, those clinical statistics and the, the value of that pretest probability you know, really shows us how the test might work in one place doing one thing, i.e. confirming the suspicion of sand in a patient with clinical signs, but it's mm -hmm. not good for ruling out sand in a patient with clinical signs, and it's not good as a screening test to say, well, I've got 20 horses in a stable here. I want to try and figure out who has sand and who doesn't have sand. The test, the test simply doesn't do that. All it tells us is these horses have been exposed to sand. Okay, that that's that's really helpful. I think uh, to give a, a a thorough perspective on on when that may or may not be a a useful thing to consider. Um, I think obviously that leads us on then to think about maybe imaging modalities that maybe do have a a, a more useful uh, application. Um, and I guess the two that that come out primarily are ultrasonography and radiography. Um, Maybe um, it'd be useful to touch base on ultrasonography first. Can you tell us a little bit more about about when that may be a useful um, test? Yeah, so ultrasound's you know been described for twenty odd years. Um, in principle, it's relatively simple. You you know you, you you ultrasound your horse, you have a good look, and you'll see a hyperechoic line um, in the colon. You may see uh, flattening of the haustra, so you lose that nice saculation that you normally see of the, the ventral colon. Um, I, I have to say that I find it challenging to be accurate um, and maybe I'm spoiled because I just I just switch to radiology because I've got it and I use mm -hmm. it. Um, and, and I'll come back to that because I think that is potentially relevant. But, you know, the accuracy, well, done well. And, and, you know, we do a lot of ultrasound these days and we do a lot of ultrasound on gastrointestinal tracts. And it's funny how, you know, that this is kind of, this was before its time. This was described by the Finns, you know, nearly 20 mm -hmm. years ago before the mass adoption of ultrasound. And it kind of got parked and forgotten. But as a screening test, you know, where we've got an animal with a, you know, we think the animal might have sand, maybe it's had a, an episode of colic, maybe it's got some of these other clinical signs that we associate um, as being potentially associated with sand. As a screening test, um, it's reported to have a sensitivity and specificity of both of around 87.5%. So that's pretty good by test standards. That's much, much better um, than the fecal glove test, which is nowhere near that, that level of accuracy. And so in terms of what that means in terms of, you know, applying it, yes, we're going to have to look at the, the, the pretest probability. Um, but basically, um, you know, if we're using it as a screening test where the pretest probability is relatively low and we get a negative ultrasound, then our negative predictive value is very high. You know, it sits around the, depending on the pretest probability, it'll sit around that 95 plus percent mark. So we mm -hmm. can use the ultrasound. We talked about that situation where we've got a group of horses exposed and maybe someone had colic and got sand and everyone else in the stable now wants to know if their horse is at risk, then mm -hmm. ultrasound yeah. can be a simple, non-invasive um, test that we can use under those conditions to screen that population and say, well, if you test negative, then it's highly unlikely you've got a significant accumulation of sand. If we get, you know, those presence of clinical signs, the positive predictive value is not bad as well, depends, you know, but it might be 70, 80%, depending on how likely we think that that animal has sand in the first place. And again, the more likely you think it is in the first place, 
the better your positive predictive value. So ultrasound definitely has a place um, and ultrasound can be definitely useful as a screening test in those populations, primarily for ruling out, um, you know, as a negative predictive test saying, okay, the horse is negative, then we're pretty confident that the horse probably does not have a significant accumulation of sand. What's interesting about ultrasound though is, is that when we look at it in terms of horses that present acutely, it loses that diagnostic accuracy. So, you know, we, we do flash ultrasounds and stuff like that, um, and they've become mm -hmm. a really integral and useful part of our colic workups. But one thing that they're not useful for is telling us whether that horse in acute pain has sand or not. Um, the, the diagnostic accuracy at that point is very, very low. So useful as a screening test in the field, not useful during that acute setting. But again, that conversation somewhat academic because that acute setting is going to be dictated much more by things like pain and the presence of borborygmi and passage of feces than it will be whether we see a little bit of sand or not on ultrasound. Yeah, sure. That that makes sense. Uh, uh, um, uh, I think in both of those contexts, one thing I think just useful to pick up on, I guess, in terms of the areas where you're where you're going to see the sand. Obviously, intuitively, it seems like the the best place to be looking closely is the um, is the sort of ventral abdomen is where you're going to need to just spend a little bit of extra time looking for that. Um, uh, I guess uh, is the is the most likely situation. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the thing you know to and and to be. To be fair, when I when I ultrasound a horse with acute um, gastrointestinal pain, you know my go-to place is is caudal abdomen up inside the prepuce or in front of the udder where there's no hair. I get good contact, and that's where small intestine likes to hang out. So, you know, when I start my flash ultrasound or when I start my assessment of a colic as a surgical possibility, the first one mm -hmm. of the first questions I'm asking myself is, do I think there's small intestine here, and is it distended, and is it going to be problematic for me? Um, that's not the place we're going to see sand. And so, you know, if we, if we live in an area where it's sand and we have a presentation that we think is consistent with sand, then we are going to have to be more thorough than we would normally be with our flash ultrasound. And so, um, and that's going to vary case to case because obviously under acute colic settings, you know, the flash ultrasound is incredibly valuable because it's quick and highly useful in giving us information. And we degrade that if we spend an hour doing, you know, ultrasound on every acute presentation. But in those selected mm -hmm. cases where sand has pushed up our differential list and maybe where we're sitting on the fence about whether we're going to go to surgery or whether we're going to, you know, commit to analgesia a little bit more, then being that little bit more detailed and thorough and moving cranially on the abdomen and really focusing on that ventral abdomen, um, you know, starts to add value in terms of it. So I certainly wouldn't do it for every single colic that presented to me because it's very time consuming to do it right. Um, but in those, there are selected cases where I would go, well, actually, um, you know, if I do know, if I think it is sand, then I'm probably less likely to take this horse to surgery than if I think maybe it's a displacement or something like that, where, you know, my hand might get forced a little bit quicker on the, on the surgical intervention. Perfect. And um, obviously you hinted a little bit at radiography um, there. And as we said, you've got some uh, nice images in the um, in the article that, that demonstrates a, a, a sand accumulation. Um, one thing I guess that's maybe just useful to touch on um, about radiography is whether it's that's worthwhile if you're sort of out in the field and you've got a portable uh, system with you, are you going to be able to get diagnostic radiographs in any of those types of cases or really does it need to be a, a, a gantry sort of higher powered system that you're, you're using in these types of cases? 
the answer is yes, you can. Um, and that's what's changed in the last few years. So, you know, we go back 30 years, we didn't have ultrasound. So the auscultation and the glove test were the best that we had. Then 20 years ago, ultrasound became sort of, you know, much more accessible to everyone. And radiography has always been there, but it's always been the big gantry with the big grid and stuff like that. And then the last, I don't know, 10 years, um, radiography has become, you know, so good and so good in the field that um, that we, we pretty much bypass all of those other things now. If, if we want an accurate answer, the best test, it's not a perfect test, but the best test we have is radiography. So, you know, it, it makes all of that, you know, auscultation still valuable. We should never, you know, underestimate our clinical skills, but it's not super accurate. So it puts that to the side. It puts the fecal glove test out as far as I'm concerned. There is just no reason why we would do that test. Ultrasound still has a place for a range of reasons, including radiation safety, that if we can get a diagnosis without radiation. But if we've got an acute case, it is a relatively quick and simple thing to say, let's take some radiographs of its abdomen and let's see if there's sand there. And then when we're talking about interpretation and, you know, we can get, we shouldn't let um, perfection be the enemy of good. And it's a really good example of perfection being the enemy of good. So if I have one of these horses in a referral center like Massey, I can take it down and I've got the big gantry and the grid and I've got a radiographer and they take it and I get this beautiful image with all this little detail and I can see that the horse once ate a, um, you know, a, a, a gold coin or whatever um, <laughs> and it's sitting there in its abdomen. But we're, in, we're looking for big things, you know, we're looking for big white things against a background of black. So even if we don't have a grid, even if we don't get a perfect image of, you know, a really high definition image, the technology that we're using and the power of our portable generators is such that we can get a diagnostic image that will tell us whether there is a significant accumulation of sand or not. And so that I think is the direction that, that we need to head when we work in these areas. It's about changing that mindset from saying, well, let's use, let's use the, uh, you know, the glove test as a screen, blah, 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 to saying, well, actually, no, if we're genuinely interested in this animal, then the simplest and most accurate thing we can do is line it up, take an x-ray and away we go. And we spend hours mm -hmm. x-raying joints and all of these other parts of the horses, but we just haven't quite come across the idea of accepting that, that routine radiographs of the horse's abdomen have real genuine diagnostic value in an at-risk population. Perfect. That's a that's a really good summary of uh, of that. I think, uh, and and hopefully gives some confidence that that uh, you know radiography is a good uh, a good go to for for uh, for these cases. Um, one thing you just touch on at the end of this section in the article is um, about hematology, um, uh, serum biochemistry, and peritoneal fluid analysis. Um, obviously, we've already touched on maybe a little bit that some of this maybe sits against the background of how the horse is is presenting more systemically as as any other colic. But is there anything we should be particularly watching out for on any of those as an indicator of of sand enteropathy, or is that really you know we should be relying on other things? Um, I think we do see, you know, there's nothing specific, but I do think we see horses that, you know, individual horses, and this is the difference between looking at data at a population level saying, well, at a population level, we see no difference between sand presentation and, you know, a large colon, a routine large colon impaction with feed material. Mm -hmm. At an individual level, you know, I think that clinically we do see some of these horses will have, um, you know, low-grade leukopenias, 
And so you look at them and, you know, they've got an evidence of some form of enteritis or enterocolitis and, you, you know, you're trying to figure out whether they're going to blow with diarrhea or whatever. Um, it would definitely be something that would increase my index of suspicion if I saw that. So if I, you know, if I went out and saw a, a colic in a, 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 an at-risk um, area and uh, for some reason I chose to do hematology and biochemistry, which I wouldn't necessarily do on every colic, but, it, you know, if I chose to do it on, on this particular colic, particularly if it has a history of underlying disease. So, um, you know, a once-off colic, maybe not so much, but when they've got that evidence of predisposing disease and I saw something mm -hmm. like uh, low-grade leukopenia or something like that, that would definitely make me want to look a little bit further. I think it would justify looking a little bit further, both in terms of, you know, looking to rule in or rule out sand. Um, and if then I didn't rule in or rule out sand, then that's something I'd want to track over time to think about whether maybe this is a horse with low-grade um, undifferentiated hindgut disease or even potentially, you know, inflammatory bowel disease per se. Um, peritoneal fluid's relatively... Um, uh, inaccurate or doesn't really tell us anything. Some of those really severe ones that, you know, have very thin friable colons will start to have um, changes in their abdominal fluid. And, and they're really challenging because you know that they're also a very high risk surgical candidate. Probably the place where we sometimes get a diagnosis from abdominocentesis accidentally is, is when we, we accidentally perform enterocentesis and we pull it out and we can feel the sand on the end of our teat cannula, um, which is always a little bit disconcerting. Um, but those horses actually tend to do remarkably well. We worry as much as we do about horses developing peritonitis. Um, those horses do remarkably well if that's the only trauma we create is an accidental enterocentesis. But definitely if, you, if we work in an area where sand is a, you know, a common problem, um, it does probably change the way that we use abdominocentesis. You, you know, in those low-grade large bowel presentations, we become a little less... Um, enthusiastic about doing abdominocentesis on those horses because we've all accidentally um, dragged some sand out through our teat cannula um, versus if we're in an area where there's no sand, then we tend to be much more willing to dive in because the risk of abdominocentesis, albeit low anyway, uh, is even lower. That's great. Um, and I think that, that puts us in a good place to, to move on to talking about treatment a little bit more. Um, I think uh, you've already given a really good summary really that in terms of cases of acute colic in in some ways having a uh, a diagnosis of sand enteropathy might make some impact but really the the sort of uh progression of the patient and and other other factors as with any colic case about um whether surgery or medical management is going to be best um really applies so i think it's good to to move on a little bit um to touch on um some of the more specific methods of treatment um and one of those that always comes to mind is psyllium uh what do we it's probably useful just to summarize what what psyllium actually is and um, because obviously a lot of us maybe have seen it in in one form or another but um uh, it's useful just to, to touch on uh, um, what it actually is and and also if we know about this sort of proposed method of its action for uh, management of, of sand yeah so psyllium's um you know psyllium husky is a is a, is a fiber source um the the theory is that it draws water in and creates sort of this mucoid gel that then sort of grabs the sand and, and drags the sand out as well um the but we don't really know how it works but i think that the the main take home and psyllium's been around for again you know it's been popular for sort of 20 plus years there's, and this is where, where Cardi's work has really, I think, framed the conversation or changed the conversation quite clearly 
Um, and it's certainly not only Cardi's work that's looked at psyllium, but there's been sort of reasonable amount of controversy as to just how efficacious psyllium on itself by itself is. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, is when we look at the body of evidence is that the administration of psyllium alone um, appears to be no more effective than placebo or simply withdrawal from sand. And so um, it's a very popular practice, but it's not a practice founded in the current evidence base. And, and you know, we talk the talk of evidence-based medicine. This is probably somewhere where we need to walk the walk and change our practice to reflect that. So the, and that means in terms both of treatment, um, in terms of, you know, treating an acute case or a horse with an acute accumulation, or in terms of prevention, um, the data does not support the use of psyllium alone. Before we move on to that, that treatment of chronic things, I do think it's really important to emphasize that when we treat these horses acutely, the focus is on the normal principles of management of colic. And particularly for these guys, it's on restoration of a patent gastrointestinal tract. So before we even think about getting the sand out, we need to make sure these horses have got a patent gastrointestinal tract and we need to empty them of their fecal bulk. So if I have a horse that comes in and it presents and I, you know, I think it's got sand, I still manage it, assess it and manage it the same as I would a large colon impaction. And then for mm -hmm. me, it's gentle, gentle. So, you know, if we treat the horse last night, it passes feces overnight, maybe I x-ray it today, it's got sand. I won't necessarily start going aggressively after that sand today. I might still wait another 24 hours and really make sure that horse is emptied out its gastrointestinal tract as much as possible. And also that it's, you know, gastrointestinal tract is as functional as possible. It sometimes takes that 24, 48 hours for that motility to kind of return back to normal after a gas distension event or something like that. And then I will try to move the sand and then it becomes focused on, okay, now let's get this sand out of here. And we loop back to that conversation about psyllium. But yeah, Cardi's work is pretty clear on top of other bodies of evidence that show that psyllium alone at best removes about 25, removes sand from about 25% of horses. And that is basically bang on what happens in a placebo effect if you simply just lock the horse in a stall and feed it hay mm. and let it remove itself. So I think we need to move past this focus on psyllium alone as being the treatment for sand. That's great. And I think really, really uh, useful just to to highlight that as a sort of stepwise fashion to, uh, um, you know, just because we've we've identified that the sand there that, that you know, it's making sure that the, the, the patient is in a good place to before we start trying to treat that. So I think that's um, a really good point to highlight. Um, and obviously, you've sort of hinted there that, that psyllium alone uh, maybe isn't um isn't the ideal treatment so obviously the the next thing to ask is whether there's you know what combinations might we need to think about um, in trying to improve the um the um uh, efficacy of, of psyllium yeah so the best body of evidence we have and this is this is from cardi's phd work and she you know this she did this over a number of years and over a number of studies so it was nice and replicatable and her data is really consistent. You know, it's really consistent when you look at, um, you know, the, the studies depending on which permutation and combination she looked at. But basically the combination of psyllium and magnesium sulfate, um, both given at a gram per kilogram by nasogastric tube once a day, is the treatment of choice in my opinion. And the, the success rates of that in terms of removing the sand 
Um, it's about 75% of horses will clear even massive sand accumulations. It's amazing how much sand comes out of these horses. Um, some of them just poop a beach. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, that combination, that gram per kilogram of magnesium sulfate and psyllium um, is a very, very, very effective treatment. It doesn't work in every single horse. There are still some horses that are refractory or that require longer term than just, you know, that sort of four days. But 75% response rate for these horses is very good, particularly given how, mm -hmm. um, you know, how much sand some of these horses have. So that to me is the cornerstone treatment based on our current, um, you know, best practice evidence-based medicine is to, to tube these horses. We recognize that, and again, we don't really know how it works. I mean, we presume it's to do with drawing fluid into the oncotics, you know, as an oncotic effect, drawing fluid into the gastrointestinal tract. But then mag sulfate has some other benefits in terms of, um, if nothing else, being a good source of magnesium for these horses, which is important for calcium regulation and um, may even be have a mild cataric effect and, and sort of stimulate water secretion. So we don't really mm -hmm. know how they work in terms of, you know, true mechanism of action. But at the end of the day, there's a good body of evidence now that says that, that the clinically the combination is, is effective. Um, there's a, a little caveat that goes back to that conversation we were talking about ensuring they have a patent gastrointestinal tract and focusing on that before we go to move the sand. It's a little bit the same when the time comes to move the sand. It's about gentle, gentle. We get into this rush sometimes that we have to fix this horse in the next 24 hours. And these aren't the cases for that. These are the cases where we want to tick along. We want to be cautious. We want to go along steadily and slowly. And so what that means is we want them back on feed, but maybe we don't want them with a huge bulk of feed in their, in their gastrointestinal tract. We mm -hmm. recognize that we can get that psyllium to swell and there's, it's a small risk, but there's a risk of gastric rupture um, if we put that psyllium in on top of a, you know, a large stomach full of hay. So we tend to starve these horses you know, four to six hours just to reduce the amount of gastric bulk they have before we give the, before we give the psyllium magnesium sulfate combination. And then invariably in my experience that moving sand nearly always makes the horse uncomfortable. Um, and so I will just routinely give these horses flonixin at the start of the treatment. I'll give it down the nasogastric tube with the psyllium and mag sulfate. Um, or if I'm sedating the horse to, to tube it, I'll just give it IV at the same time um, just to get in front of that. Um, and I always do it in the morning so that if the horse does have an episode of colic, it's going to happen at two o'clock in the afternoon, not two o'clock the next morning. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think these horses necessarily need to be hospitalized for this per se. If the horse is clinically stable um, and in a well-managed environment, it can be done in the field environment. It's obviously just time consuming to drop in each day and, and tube these horses and, and you need to be around in case they get a little bit uncomfortable. But if you manage that, if you take that slowly, slowly, gentle, gentle approach, um, the, the clearance of the sand is, is very well tolerated by the absolute vast majority of horses. That's great. And I guess one point just to, to touch on in terms of monitoring the clearance of sand, obviously a lot of those um, studies use uh, radiography to to monitor that. So I, I guess in a sort of clinical context, if you've, if you've radiographed the horse at the start, then that, that's presumably a good way to continue monitoring that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's going to give us the best answer. Again, it's not perfect because it's a lateral view. It's a semi-quantitative approach, but it gives us the best answer. Um, this is probably where, you know, the fecal glove test or looking at sand in the feces can be very useful, you know, because if we, uh, 
treating the horse with our psyllium and mag sulfate and there's absolute and and you know we've removed exposure to sand and there's absolutely no sand coming through its feces then we're probably not achieving anything you know common sense would say that the sand's not coming out therefore it must still be inside mm -hmm. the horse and so the fecal glove test is a monitoring tool as monitoring sand excretion during treatment potentially has a role whether it be the fecal glove test or whether we just do some panning for you know looking for sand in the feces some of these horses mm -hmm. will will literally poop a beach. You, it, it must be terribly uncomfortable, um, <laughs> but they, you know, they'll sit there and they will poop out this tube of sand, and you're like, "Well, that's working," um, mm -hmm. and it's very satisfying for us. I don't know how satisfying it is for the horse, um, but but yeah, that monitoring. So we can use those tools before we get to that repeat X-ray to give us an idea as to what's going on. And to some degree, it's also going to depend what happens to the horse next in terms of, you, you know, if we've removed, if we see a lot of sand coming out, it maybe is academic as to whether the sand's gone from a 30 centimetre by 10 centimetre to a 5 centimetre by 6 centimetre group, as long as we've removed the bulk of sand, which we can mm -hmm. see in the feces, and then we're going to, you know, restrict the horse's access to sand. So the follow-up can be very useful, but it's not as essential as that initial accurate diagnosis, in my opinion. Okay, perfect. Um, and obviously, you've kind of hinted there a little bit about the after, you know, the what happens afterwards. And uh, I think it's useful just to to think about that. And if do we know much about horses maybe that have come in and been treated for a sand accumulation, and then um, if they go back to their previous management, do they accumulate sand again very quickly? Is there individual variation with that? Do we do we know anything about any of those um, factors? So all of the above, I guess, and that's probably where our good knowledge base starts to run out um, in terms of, you know, effective prevention. So we've got better information on diagnostics over the years. Um, Cardi's work has generated a, a, a wonderful body of evidence for treatment that gives us some real good treatment, uh, evidence-based treatment guidelines. And then when we get to prevention, we all sort of sit around and twiddle our thumbs and go, well, we don't really know. Um, what are the critical things that we can do from, a, from an intervention point of view? I mean, definitely, if we think about things like, <clears throat> um, you know, exposure is, is, you know, if we think about our risk factors and exposure and those sorts of things. So if we think about things like, you know, thinking about greedy horses that are at risk, if we think about um, horses that are low on the social hierarchy, that's probably something we can do something about. So we've identified that the horse is low on the social hierarchy and it's accumulated sand, we know that's a risk factor for sand. So separating that horse out and feeding it separately um, or changing its social hierarchy would make a difference to that individual animal. And like a lot of these diseases, what works for one horse won't necessarily be what works for the other horse. Um, the horses that are practicing geophagia, that are eating soil deliberately, they may benefit from iron and copper supplementation. We don't have any data to directly say that iron and copper supplementation reduce the sand accumulation, but it's logical that if the horses are practicing geophagia and one of the reasons they may practice geophagia is iron and copper, that supplementing with iron and copper may be beneficial in that, those particular horses. If it's a horse that's accidentally ingesting sand, then iron and copper supplementation is not going to do anything for it. Really, at the end of the day, it comes about removing that risk to exposure. And that can be really challenging in, you know, in a real world setting. But definitely, you know, provision of appropriate roughage and constant provision of roughage, which 
you know, is so important for gastrointestinal health from start to end, provision of good quality roughage so that the horses aren't scavenging um, from the ground. Where they are going to drop stuff on the ground, matting the ground, concreting the ground, whatever it is, so mm-hmm. that the horses aren't going to hoover up not just their bit of feed, um, but also the sand that might be on the ground as well. They're the sorts of things that, that all make sense, even if we don't have great bodies of evidence to support it. How quickly can they reoccur? Very quickly. You know, we can see some of these horses clinically. Again, we don't have data on recurrence rates, um, to my knowledge at least, but we'll see these horses accumulate massive amounts of sand within a couple of weeks, you know, as little as three weeks. Um, clinically, you know, we'll have cases that come back and they cleared their sand impaction and then nothing changed. And three weeks they come back with exactly the same, you know, radiographic presentation, clinical and radiographic presentation. So that prevention is mm-hmm. really, really important. I think when we talk, the other thing to say about prevention that I think is really important is psyllium does not work as a primary treatment for sand accumulation. And I don't think that we have any evidence to say that psyllium, that the practice of feeding psyllium for one week a month actually has any beneficial impact in terms of reducing sand accumulation. Um, And I think we have some data that says that doesn't do that. So um, not, it's really about relying on the behavioral aspects of it, not, um, you know, treating them once a month or something like that. I think if we're worried about horses accumulating sand, we're much better to spend our effort focusing on monitoring those horses appropriately and intervening appropriately than this sort of background rate of psyllium once a month, you know, for one week a month, just to, to, to tick a box. I think that's potentially mm-hmm. actually leads us up a garden path in terms of um, a false sense of security. Fantastic. Well, that, I think that's really uh, a really useful way to to round it off to give us some perspective on that, and hopefully not too disheartening that uh, uh, all the hard work to clear a, a, a accumulation can be undone quite quickly within just a couple of weeks. But um, I think really important, you know, information to be aware of that and to to discuss with owners is is, is maybe help to motivate some of those behaviours. Yeah, and I think the other element is is we think about, we don't know why they accumulate sand, but presumably there is a, you know, it's a presumption, which is always dangerous, um, but presumably there is a difference in the motility of the horses that accumulate sand and the horses that don't accumulate sand. And so focusing on total gastrointestinal health and all of those things that we should be doing anyway for gastrointestinal health in terms of constant provision of good quality roughage, moderation of carbohydrate intake, and, you know, appropriate targeted use of probiotics, primarily the yeast-based probiotics for gastrointestinal health and hindgut gastrointestinal health, reasonably may make a difference, you know, at a high level across a population. Certainly that provision of roughage is really important. Um, and so it goes about rather than focusing on giving them, you know, psyllium for one week a month, step back and say, well, let's actually focus on optimising this horse's total gastrointestinal health and hopefully that means that any sand that does accumulate is less likely to accumulate because we have better overall health, we have better motility and more likely just to move that sand on, you know, in a normal, healthy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a, really, uh, a really useful um, point to, um, to sort of put at the end of the discussion there and I think uh, um, emphasises that really nicely. Um, so I think uh, all that's left to do there is, is say thank you very much, um, Ben, for for all your time on that today. I think a really a really useful practical summary for everybody to update on, uh, you know, a disease where maybe some of the um, uh, uh, things we're familiar with are, are maybe quite long established, but really nice to get an update on a lot of those.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's great. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.